may be seated. I invite you to turn with me and your copy of God's Word this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. Our text can be found on page 824 as we continue our sermon series uh, going through the Gospel uh, according to Matthew. We have seen in previous weeks that Jesus is moving. Uh, he is moving his home base. Uh, he is moving the, the central part of his ministry away from uh, the northern regions uh, as, as he begins more and more to focus uh, on moving south, south towards Jerusalem, uh, south towards uh, his cross, his tomb, uh, and his resurrection. Uh, this is another step in that direction uh, as we follow in Matthew's gospel. But along the way, as he's healing, as he's teaching, uh, as he is moving towards his own death, uh, he is confronted, as we see here, as we'll see again, uh, with leaders, with religious leaders, with Pharisees, trying to trick him, trying to trap him, uh, trying to get him caught uh, so that they will have uh, a reason to speak out against him. And we find one of those traps uh, this morning and the topic of divorce. Uh, tricky then, uh, even tricky now, uh, these thousands of years later. Would you follow along with me in your copy of God's Word, Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, may we this morning be those people who are able to receive this, who are able to receive difficult teaching, who are able to receive a priority in our lives, wherever we find ourselves, of setting you and your kingdom before the things of this world, even the good and wonderful things of this world. 
Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to believe this morning. And even as we dive into the intricacies of marriage and divorce and singleness, through these difficult topics, would you set every one of our hearts at peace and at rest in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. My main job at my house, I've learned over time, is to fix things. (laughs) To fix things that are broken, maybe that I've broken myself. (laughs) Fix things that have been brought to me, untangling necklaces that inevitably get tangled in those little kids' drawers, of unclogging toilets or shower drains, of repairing holes in the wall, of fixing all sorts of major and minor things uh, around my home. And I I used to be pretty bad at it. Now I'm just not quite as bad as I once was at fixing things. But I've found out uh, as a father and as as a pastor that often fixing the physical stuff is a lot easier than fixing the relational stuff. What we see in this text is something we see in life that we all know. The relationships are some of the most broken things in the world and some of the most impossible things to fix. I'd rather untangle a knot in one of my daughter's fine little necklaces than try to untangle the knot that we get ourselves in, in a sinful world, in our relationships. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for such pain and brokenness and lack of trust that plagues so many of us, whether we're married or whether we're not married? Who is sufficient to fix these things? Well, none of us are. No man or woman is sufficient, but what I want to show you in these verses is hope. And that is that God's grace is sufficient, even for the hardest of relationships. I don't have time this morning to cover every type of relationship that's sort of in this room, right? The the multiple layers, the history, right? The track record, the hopes and dreams or lack thereof. But I want to point you to the grace of God that is sufficient for every single one of you. Whatever burdens your heart this morning, whether you are a Christian or you are unbelieving, right? Whether you are trusting God or whether you are doubting and a skeptic and you believe whatever's going on in your life is beyond the grace and power of God. I want you to see outside of these details that God's grace is sufficient for you. His grace is sufficient for the hardest of relationships or lack thereof. The outline with which I want to look at this text is simple. We could apply it to any topic in scripture, but it follows Jesus's teaching. Three points. Number one, God creates. Number two, sin corrupts. And number three, grace consoles. God creates, sin corrupts, and grace consoles. Under each heading, Jesus is going to receive a question. He's going to answer the question, and that's going to establish a principle for us in relationships. So, number one, God creates. And this is really verses three to six uh, of Just not enough time, sort of skipping over verse 1 and 2, but this is Jesus' travel narrative where he's going to next. And what's amazing is that Jesus doesn't have a list of the top things that he wants to talk about, and he wants to make sure wherever he goes, he preaches about divorce. 
Rather, he's healing. Do you notice what's going on in verse 2? He is healing. Crowds are following him. And the Pharisees ask him a question about divorce. He is there for the needy and the poor and, uh, and the weak and the broken. And the Pharisees come and they test him. They try to trick him. So I want to show you verses 3 to 6. God creates marriage. Look at their question. Verse 3. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, it's always helpful for us to recognize when someone's asking a good faith question and when someone's trying to trick us. And as a Christian, if someone is trying to trick you, my advice to you is just don't answer the question, right? Now, Jesus, he can handle it, right? He can handle the trick questions. Uh, he can an- they don't really want to know. Jesus, give us the teaching of divorce. They want to trick him because in their world, just as in ours, uh, there were different parties within the Jewish tradition that believed there were different causes that would justify a divorce or not. So this group over here said X, Y, and Z is grounds for divorce. This group over here said, well, it's only X and Y. That group over there said, well, it's nothing. And so there's this sort of in-house debate. And so if they can get Jesus to pick sides, if he can declare he's with this party or that party, they've tricked him. They've sort of won. They've gotten him to declare one side or the other, hopefully then offending the other side, alienating the other side. And hopefully that other side is Herod, because we know what Herod does. We will disagree with him about his marriage. He cuts your head off, right? So they are laying a trap, a test for Jesus. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Verses 4 to 6, Jesus answers the question. He answers their question, verse 4, have you not read? So let's pause there for a second. What's he talking about? He's going back to the Old Testament. He's going back to what they should know. These are expert teachers of the Old Testament. And he's going to quote from Genesis 1. And he's going to quote from Genesis 2 to give his teaching on this question. But before we get to his answer, I want to show you what Jesus does when he's asked a tricky question about marriage. He goes back to the creation of marriage before the fall. He goes all the way back to the first creation of man and woman. There's a criticism of a biblical view of marriage that says, well, Jesus never actually speaks of gay marriage, right? So if he doesn't actually use those words, then he must have been fine with it. It's again, it's not a good faith question, is it? But Jesus, we see here, how does Jesus answer questions about marriage? He goes back to creation. We're to ask Jesus any question about any trick question about marriage that he doesn't answer in his day. The answer is actually here. Because he would say, have you not read what God did in the beginning? He takes us back. Any convoluted question we would have for Jesus, any legitimate question in our convoluted culture that we might have for Jesus about marriage, we understand his first answer is go back. Go back to the story and the account of creation. So what does he point us to? He points us first to the creation of mankind. Then he points us to the creation of marriage. Verse 4, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. That's not controversial in the word. That is very controversial in the current cultural moment in the United States. That verse that God made us male and female goes against the the cultural teaching 
of transgenderism. Right? That would say well, man can be a woman and a woman can be a man and there's a difference in my biological sex and the gender that I associate with. This is then offensive and controversial to say that God makes us male and he makes us female. What I want you to see this morning is the goodness of God's created order. Because the culture around us right now is telling us that God's created order is bad. And we just, we just need to fix it. And that for those people whose sort of bio, their sense of gender doesn't line up with their biological sex, well, there's a worldly answer for that. And Jesus would say, no, there's, there's an answer for it in, in the beauty and order of creation. And in the goodness of creation, God does not create us to be confused. He does not create us to, to hate ourselves or to hate our own bodies or to feel like strangers in our own flesh. No, he creates us, male and female, such that it's good. It is very good that our sex is fundamental to who we are. Men created as men, women created as women, and those things cannot be separated. And to separate that does not lead to wholeness and happiness and completeness and joy. No, no, the path to that is to go back to God's created good in his word, that he creates us souls that are in bodies. And we are embodied souls. It's who we are. We cannot separate one from the other. It matters in, in where we stand before God in his world. And it matters for the question that Jesus has asked when it comes to marriage. Because marriage doesn't work without first acknowledging and understanding the creation of mankind in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So once Jesus establishes that, he takes us to the creation of marriage. And he quotes from Genesis 2. Again, to his questioners, have you not read? And he picks up in verse 5. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The creation of a man and a woman are created as complementary individuals that are united in one flesh. That's the biblical definition of marriage. That's Jesus going back and looking at how God has created, affirming that. It's his own understanding and teaching of what marriage is. Does Jesus answer the question of gay marriage? Yes, right here. He answers that true marriage is according to God's created order. Male and female, one man and one woman, united in one flesh. And it's not just a random thing. It's a good and beautiful truth. The, the, the biblical word, I used this yesterday in performing a wedding of man or the woman fit for the man, unlike any of the other animals, is that the woman is created literally according to the man's opposite. That there is a complementary way that men and women join together in one flesh by God, Jesus tells us, so that man does not separate it. That picture that one flesh union works and only works according to God's good and perfect plan. One man united with one woman in one flesh. That's the principle that Jesus leads us to in these verses. That what God has separated, 
What God has united is not to be separated. And when he, he's back in Genesis 1 and 2, it's not even to be separated by death yet because there's no death yet, right? There's no separation before the fall. This is God's created good. It is God's created order. It is God's created ideal. We're going to see in a second how it's all messed up, how it's all blown up in a fallen world. But I want you to see how Jesus points back to the original. It is good and it is true and it is beautiful. And if, if our marriages, for those of us who are married, are to be according to God's created order, it's not merely one man and one woman united together. It is that. But it's this idea of one flesh not to be separated. And that, yes, when we pervert God's definition of marriage, we lose the idea of a one flesh union. But we can hold mentally to a biblical understanding of marriage and still pervert the one flesh union when we as spouses, quite frankly, are selfish and hate our own flesh. We don't love and cherish and nourish the one to whom God has united us not to be separated. We are violating his purpose for marriage. The ideal that God has created are two united as one such that one spouse, a husband, treats a wife as his own flesh. And the wife treats her husband as her own flesh. You see how selfishness brought into marriage can pervert that which God makes as the good, the beautiful, and the ideal. It sounds great, right? Performing a wedding when it's good and, and happy and joyous, it all seems great. It all seems ideal, right? What could possibly go wrong? Well, verses 7 to 9 bring us to our, our second heading, and that is that sin corrupts. I mean, you know this. But let's just be clear. Sin destroys everything it touches. Sin corrupts everything it touches. There's no special paint we can put on to avoid this corrosion, right? There's no special pill we can take to avoid the effects of sin in our lives. It destroys everything it touches, including marriage. So Jesus has answered their question not to separate. And they questioned back to him, verse 7, Then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? This is their gotcha moment, right? They think, we got Jesus, right? Jesus has just said something that goes against Moses. And if God's Messiah doesn't agree with Moses, the giver of the law, then something's wrong with Jesus. And the Pharisees can reject him and cast him out. Like they think the trap is sprung. Now, if you have time, you want to go back and read it. They're referring to Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 and the next few verses that speak of marriage and divorce. They refer to Moses. Moses is the author. Moses is the teacher. To refer to Moses is generally speaking to refer back to God's law. So if Jesus has said, don't separate, but Moses has said, it's okay to separate with a certificate of divorce, then Jesus is somehow violating or disagreeing with the holy law of God. They think they've tricked Jesus because Moses allowed divorce and Jesus does not. He said to them, they've asked him a question, why? They're not really asking him why. They think they've got him. But they phrase it as a why question, so he gives an answer, verse 8, because. Because 
of your hardness of heart. Just pause there for a second. Hard hearts are the result of sin in a fallen world. Before the fall, Adam and Eve did not have hardened hearts. Hardened hearts is the way that Jesus is speaking of the power and effect of sin in the world. The point that he is making is that in the context of a fallen world, in a context in which husbands sin against their wives and wives, vice versa, sin against their husbands, in a world in which there is much sin and hard-heartedness and brokenness, there are occasions and circumstances where it is appropriate and okay to do what Moses has said, to present a certificate of divorce. Now, what Moses is referring to is a time and a place when men had all the authority and the power in marriage. And marriages were incredibly imbalanced. And women, in a general sense, needed their husbands and needed to be married but in, for a lot of cultural reasons. And what was going on in Moses' day is that men were just walking away and just leaving their wives. And they would just go take up another marriage. And it's no big deal. And the guy could sort of get away with it. And then the wife is left abandoned without many, cult, without many cultural rights, right? Without many resources at her fingertips. And if the husband did not grant her a certificate of divorce, she couldn't even go and be remarried. She was the victim of a husband who broke the one flesh union by leaving her. And so by Jesus addressing this particular sin that Moses gives them the certificate of divorce to address, he is recognizing the, value, the vulnerable place, particularly of women in the marriages of the day. And he was saying, because of the hard-heartedness, particularly in context of men abandoning their wives, that in this less-than-ideal world, God provides through allowing certain divorce. Divorce, as one commentator says, is a necessary concession to human sinfulness. Certificates of divorce were not in the garden before the fall. They appeared on the, in the pen of Moses, in the law of Moses, as a result of the fall. And yet Jesus still emphasizes in verses 8 and 9 the original principle that divorce is not allowed. It wasn't really allowed then. It's not really allowed now except for this one exception that he gives. The reason... The divorce was not allowed was to protect women from abandonment by their husbands. Here, he gives the exception in verse 9, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So these are the grounds in the ministry of Jesus. These are the only grounds that he gives for divorce. And you note in verse 8, he says that Moses does not command it in these circumstances, but Moses allowed it. He's not command divorce, but he allowed divorce. Now, the million dollar question is, what is this sexual immorality? What does that mean? Well, the Greek word porneia, right? Your gears are turning, right? You can see where that leads to in life. Uh, but we, it, it, it doesn't mean certain things. It doesn't mean other things. And so that's clearly defined what Sexual immorality means in verse 9, the word porneia, it's sexual sin that clearly destroys a marital union. It is sin, particularly sexual sin, 
that clearly destroys the one flesh union. That's how God's created marriage. That's the ideal. One man, one woman, one flesh union. The sin here focused on is the sin that has destroyed that marital union. Jesus says in those cases, it is allowable to grant what Moses says in his law, a certificate of divorce. Now you're probably wondering, are there other grounds for divorce? Are there other grounds uh, that scripture give uh, for divorce? And there's, uh, there's another uh, pr- prominent one we find it in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes of what he calls willful desertion. Desertion is one spouse deserting the other one. And he doesn't really even phrase it as a grounds for divorce. He really phrases it as recognizing that divorce has already happened. That one member has, and it's an unbelieving spouse, has abandoned and deserted the other one. And recognizing that for the innocent party, the hope for relief in that case is an official divorce. Or else they are left continually victimized by being abandoned. One of the trickiest or trickier cases to understand for grounds of divorce is that of abuse. The reality that sin affects so much in a fallen world that it's not just a mean word here or there, but it can be as significant and as grave as abuse within marriages, even within so-called Christian marriages. We see in God's word that he cares deeply for those who are innocent and those who are victims in those marriages. That it is the heart and desire, I firmly believe, of God to provide primarily for the safety of those who are hurt, for those who are affected, for those who are endangered. That God has a deep and abiding heart for the innocent, for the marginalized, marginalized, for the victimized. And that it is a priority not only for God and his word, but even for the church to care for those who are victims of abuse, that they would be safe uh, in our midst. There's also many of us, myself included, that would argue that abuse is a form of abandoning your spouse. That you've all of a sudden created a home that's not safe. Created an environment that's not safe for the abused person, for the one who is a victim. And so that abuse in some forms is rightly understood as desertion or abandonment. What you see in these dark realities of marriage, whether it's abuse or abandonment or adultery or sexual immorality is that sin corrupts and destroys everything. That sin's bad enough in our own lives. But when we get married, man, it affects a whole lot more people than just ourselves, doesn't it? It affects our husband. It affects our wife. It affects our children. The destructive and corruptive effects of sin in a fallen world destroys everything it touches. And you can't put together a five-step marriage conference to say that sin won't destroy anything. You can't say, here, take these three verses twice a day for a week and, and go home like the doctor orders and everything will be fine. Sin destroys and corrupts everything. And there is never a hope for a quick fix, a quick word here or there that will repair what is destroyed. And yet Jesus gives us hope in these verses. He gives us hope that his grace and his mercy, his his kindness can counter even the most corrupting effects of sin in our lives. I want to show you in the final three verses, verses 10 to 12, how his grace consoles us. 
how his grace consoles. We've already seen grace so far. We've already seen that in God's grace, he protects the vulnerable, contextually here, the wives from a a harmful divorce, where a husband leaving her for no good reason puts her in a great disadvantage in life. And Jesus, by strengthening and affirming the bonds of marriage, protects the vulnerable from a harmful divorce. We also see in his exception clause that he protects the vulnerable and the innocent from a harmful marriage, from a marriage that would continue in ways that are harmful and destructive and not according to God's good plan for marriage. But then he widens the circle and that grace consoles not only those who are married, but those who are unmarried. He widens it out as he brings up to this third question and answer period, verses 10 and 12. Look at the question in verse 10. The disciples said to Jesus, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Now I say it's a question. It's not really a question. They're asserting something to Jesus. And let me tell you, this is as selfish as it sounds. Because the men who now Jesus is saying your standard for marriage is higher than you thought you could get out of it, according to bad interpretations of the law, your standard for marriage is now as high as the woman's standard for marriage. And the guys are like, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to be held accountable in my marriage. I know that wives have to be sort of stuck with their wives. Um, Wives stuck with their husbands. But now that Jesus is saying to the husbands, it's just as serious for you. They're like, really? What's the point of getting married in the first place? Well, why get married then, Jesus? They don't even ask. They tell him, man, that doesn't sound any good. I'm not doing that. Why would anybody do that? Isn't it better to be unmarried? Now, that's a perversion of Jesus' teaching in a number of ways. But to reflect on that now 2,000 years later, It's telling because we often think that the hardest relationship is the lack of a relationship. Sometimes we just sort of default to that, that it's better to be married than unmarried. Now, they think it's better to be unmarried, but for really bad reasons. So Jesus answers the disciples' question, not really question, in verses 11 and 12, and he actually turns it into a good question. (laughs) Jesus turns, amazingly, their misguided question on its head, and he says, yes, it's actually good to not marry, but not for your bad reasons, disciples. (laughs) It's a good thing, but not according to your selfish reasons. Look how he answers. Not everyone can receive this saying. So he takes their saying on face value. Yeah, it's good to marry. It's not good to marry, excuse me. And he says, not everyone can take this saying. They can't take this saying. They think it's bad to be married under such strict circumstances. What he turns them around is saying, no, and actually, actually, in some circumstances, it's better not to marry. The way he teaches that is this, uh, the, the name of people called a eunuch. Eunuchs in verse 12 and 13 are, are not something, or excuse me, just verse 12. It's not something a word we commonly use today. And the way Jesus, is used that, Jesus uses that word is significant because he, he gives kind of three examples or types of eunuchs. 
and, and two are types commonly associated in that day, sort of in the physical sense, then he applies it to a spiritual sense. Right? So we can broadly define in Jesus' terms here, a eunuch is someone without a capacity for sexual relations. Okay? Without a capacity for sexual relations. And he gives us three types. Number one is someone who is an unchosen eunuch. They've been made so by birth. Number two is an unchosen eunuch. They've been made so uh, by other people. It's kind of a dark side to this we won't get into this morning. But thirdly, he describes in the second part of verse 12, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He is now using a, a spiritual picture. What he's describing are those who have chosen the path of celibacy and singleness for the sake of the kingdom of God. And he's saying, you disciples act like that's a bad thing. I'm telling you, though you ask this silly, selfish question, it's actually a good thing. The commentator D.A. Carson says of this teaching in the second part of verse 12, he writes that celibacy or singleness may be a special calling granted for greater usefulness in the kingdom of heaven. He's describing people who have chosen, in a sense, the priority of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God over marriage. And he's actually telling us that that choice is a choice that we all need to make, whether we're married or not. That in God's created world, marriage is a created good, but there's something greater than marriage, and that's the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is greater than marriage. And so for the unmarried who have chosen the kingdom of heaven over marriage in this earth, bless them, Jesus says. But also for the married, there is something greater than your marriage. There is something so much more important than your marriage. There is a greater priority, Christian, in your life than your marriage, and that is the kingdom of heaven. Many marriage problems occur when we get the priorities backwards. And Jesus is telling us that both for the unmarried and the married to seek first the kingdom of God, to prioritize the kingdom of God over our relational status, and that his grace is sufficient for any of these situations. That happiness for the Christian is found in not in relief from marriage or relief from singleness, and not in a better marriage or a worse marriage, not in a better situation of being unmarried or not. But contentment and joy in the, for the Christian is found in the consoling grace of God. That in a fallen world, the hope of the cross and the promise of the resurrection, no matter our situation or our circumstance is the grace that comforts and consoles us. Just think for a moment on some of the promises of God. That for those who are married, but they find it hard because according to the words of Scripture, there aren't biblical grounds for divorce. This would be the camp the disciples were in. Or for those who are married and they do find it hard because there are biblical grounds for divorce. The promise is that God will comfort us. That a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not snuff out. The promise that God will restore us. That God will 
Restore even the brokenhearted, as he says in his psalm, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. And that for those who are severely afflicted, God is the God who defends and protects us. He is the one who promises to the innocent and to the victim, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Grace consoles those who are in hard marriages. Grace consoles those who are unmarried and find it hard. Just if, if you believe you have the gift of celibacy and singleness, it doesn't automatically make it easy, right? Or maybe you are unmarried, but you don't believe, right, that you have that gift. It's unchosen, and therefore it is hard. The promises of God, his grace consoles every one of us. Listen to what he says in Psalm 16. David prays, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Those are words particularly uh, for the Levites, the priests in Israel that didn't have a land, that didn't have a portion, that didn't have lines drawn for them. But God says to those that do not have the joys of their neighbors, the joys that they see across the hedge, across the fence in this world, God says, I am your chosen portion. I am your beautiful inheritance. And that you, no matter what situation you're in, can say the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Even for the eunuch in the language of Jesus' day, there is the promise found in Isaiah chapter 56, where we read, Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who chose the things that pleased me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. To the unmarried that don't have sons and daughters is the promise that you will have a name better than sons and daughters. God says, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. God's grace is sufficient for the hardest of relationships. And that's the promise that we cling to. The promise of the gospel is not of a good earthly marriage or good experience of an unmarried life in this world. It's the promise of a good eternal marriage. It's the promise that in a fallen world, corrupted by sin, that God draws near to the brokenhearted. The Christ our Savior died And he rose again to give us life. And that we, married or unmarried, have been united to Christ. He is our comfort. Not a relationship in this world. He is our joy. Not a relationship in this life. He is our peace. He is our contentment. Wherever you are this morning, whatever you are struggling with, Whatever portion of this sermon applies directly to your life or not, remember that his grace is enough. It is always enough. It is enough for sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Our Lord, these words can be hard for us to hear this morning. 
But it can be hard for many of us to admit that we're proud that life is hard. That it's hard not being married. That hard is being married.